Hi, my name is Brian and I'm the pastor of Vision at Holy City Church. I'm glad that you found our online sermon resources and I pray that the Lord would use them to strengthen your faith. I would exhort you not to use our online sermon resources as a substitute for regular involvement in your own local church. That being said, I pray that our teaching resources would be helpful to you and conform you even more into the image of Christ. As we come to chapter 20 this morning, we encounter Job's friend-turned-foe named Zophar. Chapter 2 tells us that Zophar was a compassionate and generous friend, but here he is anything but compassionate, generous, or friendly. This is the second address from Zophar to Job, um, but it seems as though nothing has changed since the first address, uh, except that maybe he's grown more impatient, more direct, more terse toward Job. In the presence of his suffering friend, try to keep that in mind, that this interaction is going on with a man who's lost all of his children, he's lost all of his wealth, he's suffering in great and terrible pain. That this interaction between these two friends, one of them is in deep, terrible sorrow, and the other one is increasing in confidence in his assessment and understanding of Job's situation. And while his confidence in his assessment of Job has increased, his sympathy has decreased. That's a remarkable thing to meditate on, to just think of these two brothers, these two friends sitting together. Job is suffering, and this friend is becoming more direct, less sympathetic, more confident that Job is a wicked man and less tender towards him. It creates for some um, dramatic thoughts about a friendship and about this interaction. And so as we work through this chapter in which Zophar seeks to correct Job, it's my hope that this central idea will be clear. Our big idea this morning working through Job chapter 20 is this. God judges the wicked, but not according to man's wisdom. God judges the wicked, but not according to man's wisdom. Zophar wants Job to know that God judges the wicked, but as we shall see, Zophar's understanding of this reality is deeply flawed. As we work toward understanding the central idea of this chapter, I want to approach it with two different focuses, two uh, central points pushing us towards this big idea. The first point is this. We're going to look at the wisdom of Zophar, and then secondly, the wisdom of God. The wisdom of Zophar and then the wisdom of God. My aim will simply be to consider Zophar's words and then contrast them with the larger teaching of Scripture. So this first point is lengthy, but we're going to go through the entire chapter, and then we'll look back upon this chapter, everything that Zophar says in light of what Scripture says elsewhere about God's judgment. Uh, so let's look first at the wisdom of Zophar. Job's words in chapter 19, so we're going back to last week, we're going back to that chapter that we looked at last week. Uh, Job's words in that chapter have had an effect on Zophar. Speaking has an effect on people, and what Job said has deeply affected Zophar. 
Job cried out in chapter 19. He cried out to his friends for mercy. He asked them to be tender with him. He said in chapter 19, verse 2, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with your words? Zophar heard those words. Job expressed his confident hope that God would come to his defense and rescue him with a kinsman redeemer. And Zophar listened. When Job warned his friends of, of these friends of his that God's wrath would come upon them if they continued to treat him without mercy, Zophar felt that. Zophar has thoughts, and what we see here in chapter 20 is Zophar's response to those words. This is not a letter submitted out of thin air. This is not Job's defense of God um, in a vacuum. This is, jo- this is Zophar's response to Job's request for mercy, his warning of his, to his friends if they continued to not show him mercy, and Job's hope that God would finally redeem him in the end. Here's Zophar's response. His answer begins by an expression of his heart. Zophar begins by expressing his motivation for speaking. It's important to notice that every word you speak has a motive behind it. Every action of your mouth has a heart causing those words to speak. And in verses 2 and 3, Zophar says, Therefore, my thoughts answer me. He's responding to Job. He's responding to him. And he's saying his thoughts are, are, coming, are in, coming as an answer. And he says, Because of my haste within me, I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Zophar is reacting to Job. There's clearly an emotional urgency expanding in him like a uh, bottle of soda being shaken and that expansion happening or uh, something fermenting in a jar or a can. There's an expanding that's happening. And Job's friend Zophar is clearly has an emotional urgency that's bottled up in him and is pushing him to speak He says, he uses those words in verse 2 that there's a haste within. There's an urgency. There's there's a rushing within him that is moving him to speak. Job's rebuke, Job's hope in God, and Job's plea for tenderness has offended this man. Think about that for a second. Job's hope. Job's plea for mercy. Mercy. Job's warning of his friends to not forsake being tender and kind to those in need, this has offended Zophar. He's insulted that his previous counsel has been refused and that Job would have the audacity to warn him. How dare you throw off my wise counsel? How dare you critique me? Zophar is offended. He's shocked that this conversation has gone on this long and that Job still hasn't confessed a life of hidden sin. These are the last words we will hear from Zophar in this book. And with this last blast, it seems Job's continued confidence that God will help him is all too much for Zophar to tolerate. Do you, do you see? I want you to see that in the text, that there's a motivation behind these words. And the motivation is one of offense frustration with Job. 
Just take that all into consideration because we've got to remember who Job is. Job is a godly man, and here is a man who wants to talk to Job about God, and he's frustrated with him. So these words that we read following um, from Zophar should be read, I think, rightly with a certain tone of frustration, a tone of haste within, a tone of, uh, of a man who has been insulted. Before he calls it quits on Job, Zophar repeats lessons that have already been given. So much of this will sound like review or sound like something we've already read. But in this last attempt to correct Job, Zophar says in verse 4, Do you not know this from of old, since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? This verse summarizes well the central argument and Zophar's source of wisdom. This verse, verse 4, summarizes in many ways everything that Zophar is going to say in this chapter, but it also says well the source of where Zophar has learned. Who taught you these things, Zophar? He says these are the things that that are old and ancient and have been known from the beginning of time. Zophar argues that ancient wisdom tried and true experience, the counsel of their ancestors, clearly teach that a sinner's pleasure is short-lived. Zophar argues that common sense teaches men and women to keep their noses clean because pain follows the brief seasons of fun that sin affords. We can hear Zophar say, being stupid made you happy and wealthy for a while, Job, but God isn't letting you get away with whatever it is that you've done. Verses 4 through 11 have this unified argument in common that the wicked perish. Verses 6 through 9 add that though the wicked reach the top, they are ultimately brought low and flushed from people's memory. In verse 10, Zophar says the wealth of the godless passes away so quickly that his children will be reduced to the lowest level of beggars. Well, verse 11 in Zophar's instruction, that young and strong sinners are brought low by God's judgment of age, death, and decay. Zophar is pressing into Job, listen, we know we have been taught common sense teaches us that sin is pleasing for a season. Cheating people, you can get away with it and get more, bang for your buck. But sooner or later, that cheating will come around and bite you in a rear end and you'll be worse off because of it. Even the young who think they're, uh, they're impenetrable, think they're, they're going to get away with their, their schemes, even God judges the young with age and death and decay. Zophar moves from this image of the wicked perishing and, and their pleasure in sin evaporating in in a short amount of time. He moves to a different analogy or a different idea, um, but pressing forward the same idea of God's judgment. And in verses 12 through 22, Zophar continues to drive home this idea that suffering is God's judgment upon sin and that wealthy sinners will sooner or later get their comeuppance. But this section, verses 12 through 22, focuses on how God uses the sin of sinners to bring about their downfall. 
The first section, 4 through 11, deals with how things from the outside happen to the wicked as part of God's judgment. But here in verses 12 through 22, he's showing how God actually uses the very sin and wickedness and, and um, sinful decisions of the wicked to bring about that downfall. This section, verses 12 through 22, is marked by numerous references to food. Food and body parts that are involved in the eating and digesting. The central idea here in 12 through 22 is that though the wicked will consume much for a time, though the wicked will enjoy the wealth and the fat of the land, they will be consumed by their consumption or eaten by their eating. The central idea revolving around food and around digestion, what Zophar is communicating is that it is, it is common sense, it is the pattern of the world that God consumes those who consume others. And God's hand of judgment actually uses the consumption against them such that the wicked will be eaten alive by their own eating. Verse 14 says, the food of the wicked will turn in their stomach and become, quote, the venom of cobras within him. There's that idea of delicious and rich food going into the body of the wicked man, but inside of him, it becomes poison, it becomes venom and his death. The mouth, the tongue, the food in the stomach, the streams flowing with with honey and curds, the fruit of toil, and swallowing it down are all part of God's punishment. And we see this uh, united idea here that God is using this particular thing. Verses 19 through 22 continue this idea of judgment on and through consumption as references to the belly, eating, and fullness are mentioned. But these verses contain the closest thing we've seen to actual accusations against Job. I've said it a number of times, but there's, there's this continuing pattern that Job is simply assumed to be a wicked man. They assume because of his, his terrible circumstances that he's a bad man and that he's provoked God to do this. But here in this section, we see something uh, that is the closest to a direct accusation against Job. To this point, um, in the book, Job's friends have simply assumed Job to be wicked and godless because of his circumstances. But here it's strongly, strongly implied that Job has, quote, crushed and abandoned the poor as well as stolen a house that he did not build in verse 19. Verse 20, more than hints that Job was guilty of thankless and discontent gluttony and greedy and coveting indulgence. It isn't an explicit charge. Job, you've done this. But as they speak about the wicked man, it's clear that they're aiming these words at Job. Verse 21 follows suit when it says, quote, there was nothing left after he had, spoke, had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In these accusations, it's not explicit because no explicit name is given, but this unnamed he is suffering just like Job. How are we not to assume that Zophar is assuming or accusing Job of being a wicked man who's found his wealth and prosperity through the selfish extortion of the poor? Zophar is becoming appointed. He's looking at Job and he's saying, you were super wealthy. You must have cheated. 
You must have stolen. You must have been deeply guilty of gluttony and selfishness. Verse 23 is a transition statement that uses both the idea of the full belly in verses 12 through 22, and then verse 23 transitions from this idea of the full belly and starts us into the third idea, the third image in this chapter, the idea of bodily turmoil. Uh, Weapons inflicting pain on the body connect the statements of verses 24 through 26. You can see that there in those three verses, that there is numerous references to iron weapons, to bronze arrows, to glittering points, and a devouring fire that all torment the wicked man's body and his gallbladder. These words are all spoken about the yet unnamed wicked and godly man, godless man, but they all describe Job's excruciating physical suffering and the destruction wrought about upon him by the Sabaeans, the Chaldeans, the prairie fire that killed his sheep and servants, and the great wind that crushed his servants and his children. Zophar has no evidence that Job is wicked and godless. Yet he is looking at Job's suffering with a smug look on his face and a if-the-shoe-fits sort of attitude. Zophar is looking at Job. He says, your life looks just like the life of the wicked man who's judged by God. Therefore, if the shoe fits, you must be the wicked man. Verses 27 through 29, then recap what Zophar and the other friends have been saying. God judges the wicked by bringing destruction upon them. Zophar says, the heavens will reveal his iniquity. And the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of the godless man's house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Zophar is consistent and clear, right? Sometimes you've got to look at at a mess Perhaps it's a mess that your children made or it's uh, art from a, a, a child and you've got to find something good in it. Right? Zophar is consistent, isn't he? He's consistent and Zophar is clear. We're not left scratching our heads thinking, what is this guy talking about? Zophar is clear and consistent. He wants Job to know that God judges the wicked and that none can escape from his just and all-seeing eyes. There are critiques to be made of this counsel given to Job, but it would be wrong for us to throw the whole thing out. We are a lazy people. We hear ideas, and we just either want to throw the whole thing away or to receive the whole thing. And so much of what we must do, whether we're reading um, Zophar's words here or we're listening to the news, what we need to do is we need to take parts of it in and reject parts of it. The, the old analogy of the baby in the bathwater is fitting. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There is a baby here in what Zophar has said, but there is an awful lot of bathwater that needs to be run down the drain. Uh, Proverbs sixteen eighteen says this. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And so Zophar is right when he teaches that the wicked and godless come to ruin. 
Listen, Zophar is not the hero. Zophar is not the godly man in this story. But Zophar is right when he says that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. It's right. Every one of us should believe and agree right along with Zophar that the wicked and godless come to ruin. This is true. Proverbs twenty-two sixteen says, Whoever oppresses the poor to increase his own wealth or gives to the rich will only come to poverty. And so Zophar is right to see that Job's riches to rags events uh, and to consider the possibility that God's justice is coming down upon this wicked man. He's right. Wicked men will be judged. And so Zophar is right to at least consider that God is punishing and judging Job. Because God does do that. The Proverbs are clear voices telling many of the same lessons of Zophar. We read elsewhere in the Proverbs, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant, but leads to pain. The lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil, but in the end she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she doesn't know it. Zophar is right to say, sin is fun for a season. Sin is sweet for a season, but it all evaporates, and more than evaporates, it leads to death. So when a young man says, I don't think there's anything wrong with this, we're happy, who cares if God says we shouldn't live this way? The scriptures are clear that if you choose sin, it will be pleasant for a time. But God's judgment comes upon those who refuse his instruction. So, if we brashly just toss Zophar out and reject him as a bad counselor, uh, if we reject him completely and simply reject him as completely worthless, then you will find yourself at odds with the truth. You hear me? Zophar is a miserable counselor, full stop. But if you reject him completely, you are going to find yourself at odds with the truth. You will find yourself, if you don't listen to Zophar, you will find yourself staring down the barrel of God's justice that really does deal with sinners without error. Zophar's right. God judges the wicked. This should not be questioned. This should not be uh, confused. God does judge the wicked. Though we must agree with Zophar to a point, we must remember that Satan is behind all the attacks against Job, right? We know something that Job doesn't know in this moment. We have been given revelation and knowledge that Zophar is completely unaware of. They don't know that all of these terrible, atrocious things that have happened to Job have come because Satan wanted to crush Job. He wanted to twist Job. He wanted to stop Job from worshiping God. We know that this is not God's judgment coming upon a sinner, but that these are griefs coming upon a saint. We know these things, and we must interpret Zophar 
accordingly. We must remember this evil enemy is lurking in the shadows of these tense interpersonal issues. Even the fighting that's happening between Zophar and Job here uh, is part of the devil's working. We must be mindful of his schemes. Uh, We must be mindful of this, and we will remember that the devil also used scriptures and biblical truths to tempt Jesus to sin. So as we look at Zophar and we say, well, a lot of that's true, you might be tempted in the other direction not to reject Zophar, but to take him in completely and say, Zophar's right, God judges the wicked, that's absolutely correct. Take that in. You are weak against the devil's great scheme. He loves to use half of a Bible verse. He loves to use half of a truth. He loves to use some of the attributes of God to twist reality and to lead you into pain and trouble. The devil was partly right. You hear me? The devil was partly right when he tempted Jesus with the scriptures. But his his intentions were totally wicked. Satan, and I think Zophar as well, are partly right but totally wicked. The apostle Peter, the disciple Peter, was compassionate and loyal when he refused to let Jesus go to the cross, but Jesus looked Peter in the eye and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Peter was expressing what by all appearances looked like love for his master. And Jesus looked him in the eye and said, get behind me, Satan. Partially right, can still be completely wicked. Partial accuracy and some solid theology seem to be prized tools in the devil's schemes to take people down. What does Satan like to use in his schemes? Partial truths and a select collection of solid theology and solid doctrines. Satan loves to use some of your favorite systematic theology against you. Zophar's attitude in verses 2 and 3 should be telling signals that all is not right with his response. We understand that we can say the right thing, the true thing, from a wrong heart, don't we? And so as we see Zophar telling us in verses 2 and 3 about his motivations, our antenna should be up. He confesses a haste within, and an insulted ego that's shaping his answer. And nowhere does this so-called friend show signs of careful listening. He hasn't listened to Job. He hasn't learned. He's simply become more entrenched in his view. There's a lack of patience. There's an absence of gentleness, gentleness, which are clear signs of a person responding in the flesh instead of according to the Spirit. Do you hear me? You can look at Job and you say, or you can look at Zophar and and try to find something that shows gentleness. Where's the fruit of patience in Zophar? When those things are absent, it's clear that a man, that a person is working according to the flesh and not walking with the Spirit. Unfortunately, Zophar's errors are regularly repeated in our day. 
We're not just looking to some history book. We're not just making observations about somebody that lived a long time ago in a land far away. Zophar's errors are regularly repeated in our day, and Christians like you and like me all too often become miserable comforters just like him. Talkers and teachers and well-read brothers and sisters are confident in their knowledge and don't find it necessary to use their mouth to seek understanding or to speak encouragement instead of correction. All too often, the hurting among us are met by fellow Christians who are not quick to listen and slow to speak. We can be like Zophar, can't we? We can fall into that trap and think, I have got truth to say and I'm going to say it. And we think our mouths are just tools for correction. And we don't realize that our mouths can be used and so frequently should be used to encourage and to seek greater understanding instead of just spouting all the things we've read and all the things we know. Sadly, Zophar still walks among us and sours church fellowship everywhere. Delivers misery to those who are already suffering. It's a hard thing to, to take in and to remember in the midst of these harsh, clear words from Zophar is that he's speaking them to a man who's been estranged by his entire family. All of his kids are dead and buried. His life has dramatically changed and he's watching his body waste away. And Zophar walks among us souring church fellowship, adding misery to those who are already suffering. Saints, I love this church. I love the church, universal, global, and it breaks my heart to think that fellow Christians are adding to the misery of those who are already miserable. Like Zophar, many Christians fancy themselves with well-suited, as well-suited people able to correct others, but they're and seeing their own sin. Pharisees seem to be the religious descendants of Zophar, and we do well to hear Jesus' words to them. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Does Jesus tell us we shouldn't correct one another? Is Jesus telling that we shouldn't uh, rebuke or confront people in their sin? No. He doesn't tell us that we shouldn't do those things. But so many of us, so many religious people like you and me, fall into the same trap of the Pharisees that we're always seeing the faults in others. And we're never seeing the faults in ourselves. Friends, I want you to hear Far's reminder of God's justice that does not err, though it may be delayed in our sight. I want to encourage and challenge you to turn from your sin without delay. Every one of you, you know and could write down three particular sins that you struggle with right now. Three things that you've done this week that you know are wrong and offensive to God. And I want you to hear Zophar, and I want you to hear the challenge to turn. God responds to wickedness with discipline for his children, and judgment for those who refuse him. 
I want to encourage you to turn from your sin, your sin. Be burdened by your, the, the log in your eye. Let the log in somebody else's eye pass for a little bit. You have repenting to do. I want you to hear Zophar, and I want you to turn from sin with deep motivation. But in light of Zophar's spiritual pride and self-justification, I want to encourage you to say less to your This doesn't apply to all of us equally, but many of us would do better if we said less to our friends, less especially to those who are enduring grief. Hold your tongue. Serve your hurting brother or sister. Strive to be an expert repenter instead of an expert rebuker. Remember that you magnify Christ by washing feet and bringing a cup of cold water. There is a time and a place for advice and correction and even a strong rebuke. But Zophar shows us that speaking is often the wrong response to those in grief. I want to encourage those of you who feel particularly inept with people who are in difficult situations. Some of you see people uh, enduring hurt and pain and you're like not afraid and you're ready to go to them, you're ready to do stuff, you're ready to sit down with them. And some of you have great trepidation in situations like that. You think, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to do. You are probably the people that sufferers need to spend need to see because you you know you don't know what to say just go sit on the couch and be quiet just go sit on the couch and read the next psalm sit on the couch and see what needs to be attended to in the home that this grieving person needs help with so many of us think we have the advice that we've got the word that's going to fix this person you know what they really need they need you to come over, shut your mouth, and help them with the dishes. And honestly, isn't that kind of what Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet? Isn't Jesus always giving us an example of great teachers who are also capable to keep their mouths shut and serve and care for the needy? Don't get me wrong. There's a great, we need advice. We need great teaching. We need correction. We need those things. But so often... Our desire to give advice and correction causes us to be miserable comforters. And I want us to be good comforters. I want us to be faithful comforters who come to those who are hurting. And honestly, your mouth can probably just stay in the glove box. (laughs) Come in the house. Spend time. Be gentle. Be patient. Be tender. In the end... Though Zophar's wisdom contains some truth, it is found to be earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Let's not just reject Zophar's advice. Let's cling to the wisdom of God. And so let's look at this second and final point, the wisdom of God. While Zophar's motivation to speak is an emotional urgency and a deep desire to defend his honor, God's wisdom is motivated differently. 
Honestly, if you are feeling motivated to speak, you should be able to look at your heart as you mature and say, is this a godly motivation inside of me or is this an ungodly motivation? And if you recognize an ungodly, selfish, earthly motivation inside of you, whatever you got to say, true or not, probably needs to be saved for a later time. But as brothers and sisters who are able to speak and are able to distribute the wisdom of God, we recognize that our motivation for comforting others is different. Galatians 6 says this, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Job's friends were motivated by desperate circumstances and assumed sin, while true wisdom is motivated by patterned sin regardless of the surrounding circumstances. Job's friends were looking at circumstances and assuming sin. Christian motivation sees sin and isn't distracted by circumstances. Job's miserable counselors increased the intensity of their rebukes, while God's wisdom requires righteous confrontation to be marked by a deep gentleness and humble understanding of personal capacity to error. Zophar went full of vim and vigor to speak, and Paul tells us in Galatians that Christians go to people not in sorrow, but people stuck in actual sin. And we go to them not full of vim and vigor, but we go to them with gentleness and tenderness and patience. A persistence that says, hey, you're stuck in sin and I'm going to walk with you. We're going to walk through this. So many people want to come into a situation or want to deal with sin with a quick 30-minute sermon and a mic drop and boom, I won the argument, moving on. But the scriptures tell us we see people stuck in sin and we think, I need to move towards them with gentleness and I need to move towards them with a sense of humility that, that I can fall into the same sin that they're in. Our motivation is different. Zophar was in Job's needy presence, but instead of bearing his friend's burdens, he heaped unfounded accusations upon him. The wisdom of God and the law of Christ require us to bear the burdens of brothers and sisters even when they are caught in transgression. So often we see a brother or sister in sin and we say, hey, told you being stupid was not going to work out. You were stupid and now you can't pay rent. You were stupid and now you've got all sorts of trouble. But the scriptures teach us to be the kind of counselor who goes to a person who's stuck in transgressions, stuck in sins, and we stand with them, and we bear their burdens, and we work with them. Matthew 18, 15 through 18 says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen, even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
The motivation of the saint is different. God's wisdom is motivated differently. Again, the view isn't to correct a brother's circumstances, but to privately correct his sin. Specific measures are taken to help an offender with minimal embarrassment. Sins are not imagined or assumed, but are witnessed before they are confronted. The wisdom of God deals with sin differently. The aim is to win the brother back, not to have that great mic drop moment. And not to get some sort of Christian vengeance. Brothers and sisters, so often the truth can be used as a weapon of our vengeance. Instead of an emotional urgency calling all the shots, there's a calm patience following a careful process. Matthew 18 shows a careful process of how we care for those caught in sin. It's not that God's wisdom isn't offended by sin, but even but that even the offended Christian is marked by the fruit of the Spirit and not the works of the flesh. Do you hear me? So often we can justify the works of the flesh because we say, I have a righteous indignation. That is sin and wickedness. If your response to sin and wickedness is more sin and wickedness, listen, that ain't right. Zophar's wisdom had a firm and focused grasp on God's justice. He extols the reality that God will by no means clear the guilty, but the earthly wisdom seems oblivious to the truth that God is also a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Zophar knows part of that, but he doesn't seem to understand the whole reality of a God who is both just and merciful. Unspiritual and demonic wisdom gets stuck in a loop, focusing on part of God's character while neglecting other glorious revelation of our God. It's as if Zophar had read Psalm 34, 16. The face of the Lord is against all those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. Though he has that verse memorized and maybe tattooed on his arm, he seems oblivious to the exact next verse. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Zophar seems oblivious to the fact that righteous men stumble, that righteous men endure great troubles. Zophar is aware that God judges, but he seems to be oblivious to the fact that God delivers those in trials. As Job clings to the mercy of God and declares with hope, I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Zophar is appalled by such an idea that God would deliver a wicked man like Job. But the Apostle Paul proclaims the glorious grace of God revealed to us in Jesus that, quote, the one who does not work but believes in God, who justifies the ungodly, his 
faith is counted as righteousness. Human wisdom firmly believes that good boys only receive blessings from God while the only expectation for sinners is God's wrath. Human wisdom has no category for a generous God who loves prodigal sons, let alone a humble Christ who lays down his life to redeem sinners. Human wisdom says good boys get treats and bad boys get judgment. But the scriptures tell us of a glorious God who loves prodigal sons and a glorious Savior who laid down his life for the ungodly. There is most certainly judgment for those who cling to sin and refuse to turn to Jesus in faith. I'm trying to hold two things together in tension. I'm trying to communicate two things to you this morning. If you cling to sin, you will know God's judgment. I want you to know that. If you cling to your own way of doing things, you will know the judgment of God. Yet at the same time, there is a remarkable hope and comfort for those who will turn from their sin and find hope in Jesus Christ. Absolutely remarkable. Romans 5 says this, for while, present tense, right? Right now, while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for all the good little boys and girls. No. At the right time, Christ died for who? The ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, oh, I love how the scripture just piles on. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Zophar thinks Job is a wicked man and that there's no hope for him. But the Christian gospel says Jesus Christ came to justify the ungodly, to reconcile the rebellious. Zophar is dead, wrong, and a gospelless comforter. There is hope. Jesus Christ has come to reconcile those who are far from God. Saints, hear me. You don't need to be hopeless in your pain. You don't need to be hopeless in your pain. Even if it's uh, terminal, even if it's a total mystery to your doctors, even if it involves another person who seems stubbornly set in their ways, even if, it, if, if it's that sort of situation, you have hope. Saint, you have hope in the midst of your pain. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You may not get a, a fully healed body. You may not get that relationship back. You may not get your wealth back. You may not get whatever back, but you can... Rest assured that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. 
Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Brothers and sisters, cling to these promises. Surely you fall short of the great faith and obedience of Job, but Jesus Christ died for the ungodly. If you want a little phrase that fits on a post-it note that should mess you up all day long in meditation, Christ Jesus died for the ungodly. What a remarkable divine wisdom. What a glorious reality of the gospel. Jesus Christ endured the cross so that sinners like you and me could be reconciled to the Father. Jesus came for the sick. Sick people like you. Perverts like you. The people who can't get it right like you. Jesus came for sinners like you. If you've not tasted the glorious comfort of knowing God's mercy to you in Christ, and if you forget that God is not a tit-for-tat person or a father whose love is transactional, then you will be personally miserable and a miserable comforter to the sufferers near you. Many of you need to take time. You need to read the copy of Gentle and Lowly that we gave you, or if I didn't give you one of them, come to my office and I've got some copies left. And you need to dwell on the fact that God is not tit for tat. God is not making transactions back and forth with you, loving you if, he, if you love him. If you think this way, you will be personally miserable and you will be a miserable comforter to all the miserable people suffering around you. Brothers and sisters, beloved, the good news of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, is the key to our joy in trials and our tenderness toward those in pain. You need to remember the gospel. You need to remember the glorious truth that Christ died for the ungodly. You need to remember it not only for your own genes that I could preach on, so I'm going to preach on. <laughs> you need to remember it for your own comfort, but also for the comfort of others. Why do you need to wake up earlier tomorrow and meditate on Christ died for the ungodly? Because you need to remember that, you ungodly sinner. And all the ungodly sinners who are weeping and struggling that you're going to interact with tomorrow need you to remember that. Otherwise, you're going to add to their misery. If you remember and cling to Jesus, you will have hope and you will deliver hope to brothers and sisters in desperate need.